your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Jared Meyer. Jared is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and author of a new study on the effects of the ride-sharing company Uber in New York City. Jared, welcome back to the Debt Dialogues. Hey, thanks for having me again, Don. So I discovered Uber, I guess, about three years ago. Um, My wife and I took a road trip up to San Francisco and parked in front of our hotel uh, on the street. And we went in and they said, all right, guys, first rule do not move your car because you will never, ever, ever find parking anywhere close to us again or anywhere else around the city for that matter. So we tried to take taxis around San Francisco, but we ran into the problem, which is, as Eddie Izzard famously pointed out once, there's only four. And so, I mean, we would be waiting 30, 40, 60 minutes to get a cab both to and from where we were going until we ran into a friend who said, you haven't heard of Uber? And Sure enough, we download this app onto our phone, and within two or three minutes, anywhere in the city, we had a car. We could see who the driver was. We could see reviews of him. It was a clean car. Um, the payment was handled, you know, on, through the app, so we weren't, you know, taking out our credit cards or handing out cash. Uh, all of it was just so simple and so delightful that I was blown away and it was really excited to find out that very shortly after that more and more places that I was going had Uber. So I think this is a really incredible company, but um, they are, have also come under attack and have been very controversial. And so I wonder if you can set out by saying a little bit more about kind of what Uber is and what problems it's solving, and then give us a kind of overview of the controversy and the attacks on Uber. Well, I would say your story with how you discovered Uber is by no means unique. Everyone I've talked to who's taken it, they never want to go back to taxis. And that's because the taxi systems in localities and states across the U.S. has been heavily regulated for so long that the customer service has really started to suffer because there's been really no competition coming in to try to make the taxi industry adjust to modern times. So along came Uber, and I remember uh, Travis Kalanick, the CEO, he was in Europe, and he was trying to get a taxi, and he couldn't do it. And he thought, wouldn't it just be so easy? We have GPS location technology. We can save our smart, uh, we can save our credit cards to our smartphones. All the things are in place, but there's just no way that I could call a cab very simply through my phone. So when he created it, it was first working with a lot of black car livery drivers, but soon Uber expanded into what's known as UberX, and that's where just individuals who pass background tests and safety requirements can start driving their own cars to pick up people around their city and start making some money on the side. And that's really where Uber's growth took off, because as their drivers increase, they've been able to meet the demand of more customers, and both have grown together to now where we see Uber threatening taxis in many cities across the U.S. and world. So I guess one one part of the context that you mentioned there is that, I mean, taxis are heavily regulated, and part of the regulation is that there's almost always a limited number of them. So it can be very hard, particularly at 
either peak times or at, you know, really late or really early hours to get a taxi. And so that one of the things that they're, that Uber is doing then is just bringing more drivers and more cars to meet the demand. So given all of that, like what is, what is the objection or what are the threats to Uber? Well, the reason that there are so few taxis, this is by design, because if you think on, if we lower the supply of anything, then people are able to charge more for it if demand remains high. So, for example, in New York City, this is an easy example to look at. In the 1930s, there were more yellow cabs on the streets than there are today. So while there's 13,000 yellow cab medallions, which are the little things that allow them to pick up street hails, that might sound like a lot. But for anyone trying to catch a ride home after work or after a night out at the bars, they know that this is far below the level needed to serve the city. So what taxis have done is they put in place caps on their own growth because when they're already established in the market, that allows them to charge higher prices and customers are really the losers in this current system. And that's why I think people have embraced Uber, Lyft, Sidecar, any of these new ride-sharing technologies that have allowed them to get a ride when they actually want one. So you have a new paper, Uber Positive, and you're kind of looking at the data of what's going on in New York City because of Uber. So talk about why you wrote this paper and then give us an overview of what you found. Well, what was going on in New York was that Mayor Bill de Blasio, he's a big fan of the taxi industry, and they actually gave him over half a million dollars to help him get elected. So when he came into office, he decided to come up with some excuse so that he could lower Uber's growth because it was cutting into the value of taxi medallions. And he put in place, along with city council, he wanted to propose a ban on the growth of ride-sharing services while uh, the city studied its effects on Manhattan's uh, traffic. And I thought, okay, he's talking about one thing, which is congestion in Manhattan, but he ran as a mayor for all of New York City. So he should really be looking at the benefits of ride sharing on outer boroughs. So I started talking with Uber and convinced them to share all their ride data for 2014 in New York City with me. So I was able to go through these rides, look at all 9.5 million UberX rides that year and see where Uber's tremendous growth went to whether it was really just all going to Manhattan and the airports or if it was going to residents of outer boroughs who historically have been very underserved by the taxi system because yellow cabs, almost all their rides, over 90% take place in Manhattan. They're not going out to Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, any of those other areas. Yeah, or even, I mean, there's many parts of Manhattan that are hard to get cabs as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's all midtown and downtown. That's where the money is. And we see this in other cities where taxis tend to concentrate on areas with higher wealth to serve business travelers. They're not going to be cruising around a residential neighborhood just hoping that a fare comes about. But with Uber, a car can find out where someone wants a ride and actually drive over there rather than just cruising around the streets hoping that someone walks outside. Uh, so tell us a little bit then about what you found uh, in terms of where was Uber driving, um, where were they picking up passengers, were they primarily just competing with the taxis, or were they f filling needs that weren't being fulfilled before? 
Well, the number of UberX rides per month increased 450% from January to December 2014. And this large increase then, as I said, allowed me to look at where the gains were going to. And while Uber still primarily focused on Manhattan, about 73% of the pickups were in place there compared with, again, over 90% for taxis. As the service grew, it moved further and further away from Manhattan and more towards low-income neighborhoods. So if we look in, for example, December of that year, uh, we had a smaller percent of rides starting uh, outside of the busy part of Manhattan where yellow taxis have a monopoly on picking up passengers and they move towards outer boroughs. And this really, the way I looked at it was if Mayor de Blasio would have put in a put in place a cap on Uber in the beginning of 2014, by December, there would have been 200,000 fewer UberX rides for outer borough residents. So if he was, when he's debating putting in place the cap now, he's cutting off growth for people who need more public transportation options and ways to get around rather than helping uh, people who live in Manhattan by lowering their traffic congestion. Yeah, and even, I mean, I was in Manhattan a few days ago, and it started raining, and I had to walk like three quarters of a mile, and I couldn't get a cab. All the cabs already had passengers, and click my Uber app, bam, I had a a ride back. And so it's even the idea that, well, if there's a little more traffic congestion, we can just go ahead and ban something that's providing a valuable service is, I think, really ridiculous and just shows a contempt for both the freedom of Uber drivers and of the people who want to use them. Yeah, and the congestion argument is pretty ridiculous as well. Uh, I lived in New York City, so I saw how they moved more bike lanes. They shut down parts of Broadway for pedestrian walkways and even parts of 6th Avenue. They also, uh, subway ridership is at uh, pretty much an all-time high. So the city is just growing in general. So we would expect traffic to increase. And blaming all of this on Uber, which accounts for just a very small percent of cars coming into the city, each uh, each day, like about one percent, it makes no sense to blame all of increased Manhattan congestion on a ride sharing service. So I want to talk a little bit about pricing because I think this is re- really fascinating in a number of dimensions. So first of all, just explain how pricing works for taxis, and then kind of contrast that with pricing for Uber. So taxis often have to go through city regulators to be able to change their prices, and this can take a long time, and they have to charge the same price for everyone, regardless of demand, time of day, number of drivers on the road, any of those factors. On the other hand, ride-sharing services are able to instantaneously adjust their prices based on supply and demand. So let's say it's, you know, 2 a.m. on uh, New Year's Day, right after the bars are closing for New Year's Eve. Obviously, if I was a driver, I don't want to be out on the road at that time because if I'm just going to make my normal fare, I'd rather be in bed or out partying myself. But if I could make maybe four or five times the hourly amount I usually do, I would think twice about going out to a bar and instead say, you know what, I'm going to drive and make some money. And then uh, what ride sharing services do is they allow that to happen. Exactly. Drivers can make more money when they go out in times of high demand because customers are charged uh, higher rates. And this also works the other way to lower the demand for rides. Let's say I've got maybe a mile walk back to my house and I don't want to make that trek in the snow. So I open up my Uber app because I just want to get home somehow and realize that it's four times the normal price 
Well, all of a sudden, it looks a whole lot more attractive for me to walk home or maybe take the subway rather than trying to get an Uber. So it increases the supply of drivers and it decreases the demand for rides, letting, making sure that everyone can be able to get a ride in a, in a time period that's maybe you know, 10 minutes or less at max. Yeah, I think it's really – that point is worth stressing in that um, I think a lot of people who love Uber still complain about surge pricing because they don't get that it's the it's that very fact that they're able to significantly raise their rates when there's peak demand that enables them to do, to do what people love about them, which is get a car on demand. And I know there's been certain times in New York or D.C. where Uber has been on surge pricing or Lyft has been on what they call primetime pricing, which are both just forms of dynamic pricing. And I see that it's a higher rate. So instead, I say, you know what, I'm just going to wait on the side of the road for 20 minutes and hope that I catch a taxi. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. So when people talk about how they detest surge pricing, that's exactly the point, but they need to realize that it's integral to the business model of ride-sharing companies, and it's what allows them to be so reliable. But in New York now, after Bill de Blasio's defeat on the cap, which I should point out was delayed while they do a traffic study, so Uber, Lyft, all the other companies can continue to grow, there's now a bill in place that would cap surge pricing at 100%. And because this remains unpopular with the public, because a lot of people don't understand how integral it is to the effectiveness of ride sharing, I'm really worried that this could go through. And it would, and obviously the taxis support it because it would make Uber less reliable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really helpful to kind of look at it from the perspective of a driver, right? It's like, I want a driver in bad weather. I want a driver, you mentioned New Year's Eve. There's a funny story about Ayn Rand lived in New York and she wanted to visit her husband in the hospital and spend New Year's Eve with him. But the question was, would she ever be able to get home? And basically Leonard Peikoff, her, her friend, found out that there was a 30-second period right at you know the countdown where if you called, you could get a cab. And so she was able to get home. But it's that in order to give people an incentive to be drivers during these unpopular periods or high peak periods, like that is the whole, that is the essence of what surge pricing is doing is it's, it's, it's not just reducing demand. It's also increasing supply. Yeah. And actually in the data that I looked at from New York, I was able to see this in action because taxi companies, they switch their shifts. The drivers come in and then a new one starts over at about 4 PM. So right during the beginning of the evening rush hour. So I thought I would expect to see higher Uber rides during that, those hours. And that's exactly what I saw. Actually, uh, in the evening rush hour was much higher in terms of trips than the morning rush hour for Uber. And I would attribute at least part of this to the uh, lower amount of taxis that are on the road. And then to the point of late at night when you're trying to get home, the number of Uber hourly trips late at night, let's say from you know 8 p.m. to 1 a.m., is actually higher than the number of morning rush hour trips. So people are looking for Uber and trying to take rides at times when maybe they don't feel safe late at night standing out on the side of the road hoping a taxi comes or when there's just not as many cars on the road. Because, again, what driver would want to be out at 3 in the morning when they could be at home in bed if they didn't have a chance for higher earnings? I want to turn to the issue of safety because one of the things that um, one of the debates is here, these people aren't licensed by the state. Uh, What are the safety implications of a company like Uber? And you've written about it from a number of different perspectives. So can you just give us kind of an overview of how to think about safety in regards to these companies? 
Well, whenever you hear cries for regulation, it's always in the name of public safety. That's what people say, because that's a sell that a lot of people would buy. If, if we need some regulations to keep consumers safe or protect them from these sell, themselves, these are all arguments I've heard. And they have, they've been used to argue against Uber and Lyft as well. But when you start looking at things, you see that ride sharing actually increases public safety on nearly every front. So I don't think these arguments, while they may be valid, even hold any water anymore. And one of the things I like to start with is the safety for drivers. So being a taxi driver is actually one of the most dangerous occupations in the U.S. The homicide rate is twice as high as those for is that for police officers and 40 times the average for the U.S. So being a taxi driver is a very dangerous job. And this is for two reasons. For one, taxi drivers carry a lot of cash on them. In New York City, the data I pulled from the Taxi and Limousine Commission, it showed that 45% of trips are still paid for with cash. And because drivers are working about nine and a half hours on average, if a thief wants to rob a cab driver, it's pretty safe to assume they have at least $100 on them. And then also, it's dangerous because it's completely anonymous. You're picking up someone on the side of the road and you have no record of who they are, what their intentions are, or anything. So being a taxi driver is very dangerous, but all these dangers are corrected for with ride sharing. Because not only do you have to link your profile to some public profile, you have your credit card fully on file, and the driver can see a picture of you, your name, all these things before they pick you up. But no cash ever changes hands because all payments are taken care of electronically. So in addition to not having to have the awkward tipping thing afterwards or a a taxi driver claiming that their credit card machine's broken when it really isn't just to try to make you pay with cash, you can just get right out of the car after you finish a ride-sharing trip. So that's how it improves safety for drivers. But the safety benefits also extend to riders. I mean, you have a public uh, rating system where after you finish a ride, you can rate the driver. And if you give them a bad rating, they're going to get kicked off the platform where they can no longer drive with the companies. So I think it increases safety for both riders and drivers. Uh, One of the other interesting statistics I've seen you mention, I've heard about this before, is that there seems to be a measurable reduction on drunk driving uh, from Uber. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and Uber released a report with Mothers Against Drunk Driving that showed how effective Uber is at reducing drunk driving. They did a survey and about 88% of respondents said that Uber makes them less likely to drive drunk, which I know uh, just from experience and talking with my friends, that's something that's true. When you have a reliable means of getting home that's pretty affordable, you don't want to take the chance on endangering someone else and endangering your own life, plus all the other fines you can get if you drive drunk. And what they did was they looked at cities in California right after they introduced Uber and compared it to cities where they didn't. And because it's such a local issue, this is a pretty solid experiment in terms of economics. They can look at close uh, cities and see the effects on drunk driving, and they found noticeable decreases in both drunk driving arrests and fatal accidents after Uber was introduced. So this is something that lowers the incidence of drunk driving, and it just it makes the streets safer. I've even talked with high school students now after they're coming back from a party or college students, and it's, uh, it's kind of a social thing. Oh, we got to get an Uber. Like people don't view drunk driving in the way they used to because now, even especially I would say in small college towns where ride sharing services are available, this is something that was flat out not available before because taxis really didn't operate in those areas. Um, one of the other arguments made is 
that the drivers are being ripped off and exploited. There was a big controversy in California about basically saying that you're treating them as independent contractors and they should be treated as employees, which would, I mean, I, I think in many ways wreck their business model. Are, what is the plausibility of the idea that the drivers are being ripped off by Uber, and, and what do you think the reality is? Well, I think you can just talk to drivers themselves. Uber wouldn't have seen its massive increase in amount of drivers, and it couldn't have done its growth if it didn't have strong participation from its driver partners. So when we see people signing up to drive for Uber and then staying on the platform as they realize it's an effective way to work part-time or make some extra money or find work to keep paying their bills while they're in between jobs, we see that drivers view this as something that's beneficial. But if Uber and Lyft were forced to categorize their driver partners as full employees, this would remove a lot of the flexibility that makes ride sharing so appealing. Right now, for example, in New York City, only 10% of drivers work more than 50 hours a week, whereas taxi drivers, they have to work at least 50 hours a week pretty much. So it makes no sense to then say that uh, these are employees when the companies that are connecting them with passengers don't control their hours at all. They really just allow a technological platform to connect riders with drivers, and then they facilitate the payment process. They're not telling drivers you have to be out on the road this time or you have to do this. You can really use the app as much or as little as you would like and whatever fits into your circumstances. So I would think that it would have uh, catastrophic effects on consumers if we made uh, ride-sharing companies force all their hundreds of thousands of driver partners to be full employees. So one thing I think, um, it, it, I want to turn to the taxi companies for a second because on the one hand, they're definitely monopolies who have received special protections. But on the other hand, in effect, there are people who paid you know thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes more than a million dollars for the right to – for taxi medallions. And now they are seeing that being undercut. And so what do you think should be ha what what should happen to the taxi industry? Well, there's two things I want to point out first. Uh, first is that these taxi medallions or what they pay for to be able to be a taxi company, that allows them to pick up passengers on the side of the street. And no one is talking about taking that away from them right now. That's not the model that Uber and Lyft uses. And secondly, if we look at the investment returns on buying a taxi medallion in New York, it beats every other asset class over, let's say, the past 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. So this isn't the case of people who bought it and then didn't really see a return. I mean, people made millions of dollars off of buying these medallions. And in New York, it was selling for over $1 million right before Uber and Lyft started to grow. And that's fallen a lot recently. And we really don't know the market price because there aren't any sales going on because people realize that taxis are going to have a hard time competing with this much better service. All the sales we've seen have been pretty much forced sales where someone either gets divorced or passes away and then the state uh, has to sell it off. So I get calls all the time from credit unions that own these medallions. So also it's not just individual cab drivers owning these medallions. That's a rarity. It's big banks who own them. And they called me and they were talking about how this would just be catastrophic for the economy if we let the value of taxi medallions fall even further. And I asked them why this would be. And they said, well, think of all the people who make tires or who service taxis. They're not going to have any business anymore. I was like, well, oh, yeah, because I completely forgot that people who drive Uber don't need tires or don't need their cars serviced. So it just shows you what insane lengths 
these proponents of a government-sanctioned monopoly will go to to try to keep their favorite position. I, I mean, the other thing that I think would be helpful is the more you can liberate the taxi industry. I mean, you mentioned the way in which the prices they charge are controlled by government. I think the more that you can liberate them to compete too, um, I think that that should be the focus, not how can we restrain Uber and companies like that, but it's how can we liberate the taxi industry? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I say the thing we need to do is think about how we can make taxis more like Ubers not how we can make Ubers more like taxis. And there's been some launches of apps to try to help the taxi companies compete. First, it was Halo, which was a smartphone app that allowed customers to hail a taxi by just pressing a button on their phone. But it missed a lot of the main things that makes ride sharing so attractive. For one, they couldn't charge dynamic prices. And secondly, there was no post-ride feedback system. So if you had a, a terrible ride with a rude driver or an uncomfortable car, there was no way you could let this be known so that that driver would get taken off the platform. And without those two aspects, it's really just doing changes around the edges for the taxi system. So we need to look at the fare structure that taxis are allowed to charge and change it because new technology can clearly communicate prices ahead of time. This isn't a case of consumers being ripped off. I know, for example, on Uber, let's say it's surging 2.4 times. So the price is going to be uh, over almost two and a half times as high as it usually is. You have to physically press in 2.4 on your phone and agree to that price. So you see on crowdfunding sites, People who say, oh, I took an Uber home from the bar and it was $300. Please help me pay this. Well, you agreed to this. It's not the case of these companies taking advantage of people. You have to explicitly agree to it. But now there's been a new launch, and I've heard it, it deemed everything from the savior of the taxi industry to the thing that will finally take down Uber, and it's called Aero. The only problem is Aero is exactly the same as Halo, which I should point out failed in the U.S. and now only operates in Europe. Yet people still think if we could just allow smartphone technology and credit card payments for taxis, everything would be good. That's not the case. We need substantial changes where we look at the whole model of the taxi industry that, again, has been insulated from competition for so long that its standards have just plummeted. I want to talk as we wrap up about some of the wider implications or lessons we can draw from this. What do you think, first of all, the implications are for, do you think there's other ways in which smartphone technology or new technologies, uh, are there other industries where this could be used to kind of break the back of government regulation? There's really uh, no industry where it wouldn't be applicable because what we've seen, ride sharing, Airbnb, even Craigslist, all these different services, they're really nothing new, the idea behind them. It's someone has something you want and you're willing to pay for it. The problem before was trying to find those people and make a match. So these whole industries popped up that resulted in matching people who had something with those who wanted that thing. But now with smartphones, the, the consumers really have the power in their hands now, along with the people who are providing services, and they don't need the middlemen. But unfortunately, the middlemen have been pros over the past few decades of creating political entrenchment where they're insulated from competition. So this is why we see the fight in every industry that's being disrupted and why in the future, if, if we let the established industries win, it's really going to cut off a lot of avenues for entrepreneurship because these give more power to consumers and to people who want to go out and work and be their own boss. But also it leads to just a system where 
we are stuck with inefficient middlemen who just match people and charge a substantial sum of money to do so when people can do this themselves. So I really think it's throughout the whole economy, if we could get rid of these regulations, which I should point out is very difficult because of the uh, that because of how uh, all the political protections they have, or even if they can operate outside of the regulations, which is sort of what Uber did, because they're saying these have been around since before phones were invented, before the internet was invented. Why do we have to comply with these regulations when we have a completely different business model, which I think is a valid argument. If these laws were made back in the 1930s, in the case of New York with the Haas Act, why should that apply to something that just started you know, after 2010, that really makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most important lessons is that I think I, businessmen basically saying, all right, we're going to do something we think people will benefit from. We're not harming anybody. We think these regulations are irrational. Rather than try to convince a bunch of regulators and politicians, let's, in effect, make our case to the public, provide them the service. And then if we get clamped down on by regulations, we'll, you know, we'll uh, in effect, let the political debate take place. But one of the things that has happened historically is that companies haven't done that or haven't been able to do that. And as a result, they basically have, you know, no way to um, – people aren't invested in their business model. They don't know what's ex- what uh, could have existed absent the regulations. And I think one of the most important values of what Uber has done beyond just revolutionizing their industry is really given reality to people about – Think of how much we've missed out on precisely because of all of these irrational controls and restrictions on business. And so as somebody whose job it is to persuade people about the value of free markets, having this example of something of a company that would not have existed if uh, they weren't willing to, in effect, challenge the regulatory state, um, it it really makes real the costs involved on that lack of freedom. Exactly. And we've seen when Virginia issued cease and desist letters to Uber and Lyft, the vast public outroar where VA needs Uber was trending on Twitter. And we saw in New York where the New York City uh, residents, they just would not put up with de Blasio's cap. They said, no, we're not doing this. I mean, the public out, the public support in terms of uh, fighting for Uber was very strong. And that's because people have they've seen how much their lives have changed. In just, you know, let's say someone who just picked it up a few months or two years, they, they can't imagine what it was like back when they had to stand on the road trying to hail a taxi. And I think this is especially true for young people. And I've heard the term thrown around Ubertarians, that young people are libertarian when it comes to Uber because the regulation hits them so close to home. And they say, you know, I don't want any government getting between me and my Uber. But I think they're extending this to the rest of the economy. And the reason I say this is because for a recent Reason Foundation poll that was released, it found only 18% of millennials thought that government regulation primarily protected public safety. So when they see that they can't get an Uber or that Airbnb isn't able to exist in their city, they start to realize that, hey, throughout the rest of the economy, all the million commandments we have from Washington and the countless other ones from state regulators, they're really holding back uh, entrepreneurship and they're protecting established industries rather than protecting the public. Jared, how can people find out uh, about your article, about your work more generally? 
Uh, well, I write about Uber for a lot of different publications, but it's all going to be cross-posted on economics21.org. That's the word economics, then 21.org. And also just seeing, I'd say what everyone else is writing on Uber, generally, it's very positive because most economists, they're all in favor of it. Most people, if you want something better for people who are underserved before, as my report showed, Uber extends transportation options to low-income neighborhoods. This is something people have been trying to do for a long time. So there's been fewer and fewer critics of Uber as its benefits have become far more apparent and the public safety concerns have shown to be unfounded. My guest today has been Jared Meyer. Jared, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Hey, thanks a lot. I want to connect this issue back to the welfare state. One thing I think that's revealing is that it's precisely the people who claim to care about the poor, such as Bill de Blasio, who are opposing a company that, as Jared pointed out, are actually helping poor people, both those who work for Uber as drivers and those passengers who would otherwise find it enormously difficult or more expensive to get transportation. And what that suggests is that they aren't really motivated by seeing poor people better off. Not if they're made better off through voluntary trade rather than welfare state handouts or regulatory dictates like the minimum wage anyway. No, this is just one more piece of evidence that what really animates the egalitarian left is hatred of business, of success, of capitalism. And because of that hatred, they look for any excuse to shut down innovators like Uber. And notice, by the way, what impossible standard they're holding the company to in order to quote, allow them to operate. Uber doesn't just have to prove that it's doing something net beneficial. It has to prove that it's not having any negative impacts, not even on traffic congestion. Now, of course, that whole perspective is wrong. A company shouldn't be treated as guilty until proven innocent. The right policy should be unless the government can show that a company is violating people's rights. They're free to innovate and compete. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.